Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. privilege of introducing to you guys John Ryan, who is a guest preacher for us today. He's filling in and preaching. Corey's gone, and I was off all week, so um, it was works out perfectly. So we're really excited to have John here with us, and I'll hand it over to you and let you do it. Thanks, Thanks man. man. Appreciate it. <laughs> Super thankful to be here. Um, for those of you that don't know me, uh, my name is John Ryan. I've uh, been a friend of Corey for who knows how long Heights has been around, Jeff? Seven. Seven years. So I've known Corey for about eight. Met Corey in an assessment room through Acts 29, and he was a mess. Uh, <laughs> still is a mess, but he was a lot more of a mess then. And uh, I'm not kidding when I say that. And if you ask him, he'll be honest with you and tell you, yeah, I was a mess. And uh, God, God is grown not only a friendship and a, and, and a lot of, uh, through just a lot of time together, but what, one of the best things I would say is that he's just born uh, just a, a really, an ability to live with somebody in a foxhole together, knowing that we're pointing our whatever proverbial weapons God's given us in the same direction and not at each other. Um, there's a lot of people that you get to go to war with in Christ that you're not quite sure if they're going to shoot you in the back of the head or they're going to bail out of the foxhole and head somewhere else. And Corey's one of those guys that I've lived in the foxhole with for a long time and way more than planting churches and being a pastor. I'm just talking about marriage, life, parenting, all those kind of things. Um, so thankful to be here this morning, be with you guys. Yesterday morning, I was sitting in a room at 7.30 in the morning with a man and wife and three other guys and girls. And we were talking to a, a guy who God is calling to be a pastor elder in our church. And this was kind of the beginning of the process where we sit down and talk to he and his wife and, and really let them ask us a ton of questions while we're asking her questions. Like, are you sure that you want to be a part of this? You sure you want to let your husband into this process? Are y'all sure that y'all are unified in this? And so we ask a lot of questions, but then they get to ask us a lot of questions. I know his story. I know what's going on in his life, but I wanted him to share their story because it was important to the other guys in the room and, and a couple of our wives were in the room too. And, and so he got to share about their lives. They've been married for 14 years and two years into their marriage, really probably about a year and a half into their marriage, he started having an affair. And this happened at our church uh, 14 years ago, a church called Matthias Lot Church over in St. Charles. And uh, he stopped the affair probably about a year, year later and then didn't tell his wife or anybody and just was living in the guilt and the weight and the shame of all that for several years. And about three or four years later, God kind of like peeled his heart apart and, and led to a moment of confession with his wife and some other guys in the church that he was walking with. And so long story short, there's been about 10, 11 years of, of reconciliation and God restoring their marriage and just a beautiful thing. And they actually get to help walk other people through all sorts of chaos in their marriage now. And so that's, that's his story. And I have two questions for you that, that I asked him as 
we were sitting there and he knew I was going to ask these questions. I just wanted him to be able to talk about them. And the first question is this, what, what makes you be faithful to your wife now? Because probably a year into marriage, there's, there's all sorts of reasons to be faithful. The, the most of which is like, there's still this like new gooey feeling, right? Like, Hey, I really like this person. I don't want to screw it up, but you did. So what makes you be faithful now? Like, Seriously, what makes you be faithful now? That was the first question I asked him. The second question I asked him was this. Do you think you're qualified to be a pastor based on the, the sin that you've committed? And I, I want to ask you that question. What do you think about this man? What, why is he faithful at this point in his life and is he qualified to be a pastor? One of his responses to the questions about faithfulness was just, he said, what's, what's changed in my life is this I realize now that most of what I was doing in my marriage was to affirm my need to be loved. And he said, I realize now that I was never meant to find that in my wife. And when she didn't love me the way I wanted to be loved in the first year of my marriage, I found it another woman and realized that she couldn't do that either. And, and he said, now what I know is that that love only comes through the person of Christ. And he said, I'm still, still learning that, but that's, that's the first thing I can tell you. The reason I'm being pushed and moved into faithfulness is the love God has for me, not the love my wife has for me. But then the second thing he said was this, I've, I've recognized my daily desperate need for Jesus to love my wife the way God's called me to love her. And so it's moving me daily to submit and to walk in his presence through the power of the Holy Spirit, just to, to be with him, much less to be faithful to my wife. And he says, that defines me now more than anything used to define me 14 years ago. What defined me 14 years ago was my need for love. What defines me now is Christ's love. And so I was sitting there and thinking about all this this morning as we're walking into 1 Samuel 22 and, and on the title of what you guys have been in called Lest We Turn. And I want to ask you this question, what keeps you faithful to the Lord? And I just want to encourage you, like your faithfulness to the Lord is even more vital than the faithfulness of a man to a wife. Now that we think the consequences are a little bit different, in some senses they are. I've been married for 31 years, and, and I realize this to this day, that, that if I was faithful to my wife like I am to the Lord, I wouldn't have a marriage. Men, have you ever thought about that? Like in our, in our relationship with our wives... Even a girlfriend, if you're not married, if you're dating a girl and, and on your status page it says, in a committed relationship, like, you cheat on her and pretty much it's over. And yet, our faithfulness to the Lord is, like for most of us, we wake up in the morning, we're like, well, Lord, you know, I'll try to be obedient today. Help me not look at porn 12 times, maybe just three times. Help me, help me not yell at the stupid person I work with. Help me not be mad at the person who's unlovely that's so hard to love. And, and we go on and on with all these things we need help in, knowing that we're probably going to sin anyway. And our faithfulness, like our pursuit of faithfulness to the Lord, if it, if it was the same way we pursued faithfulness with, with another human on this earth, we would have zero relationships. Zero. And I just want to encourage you this morning. How, how is your... And this is going to turn encouraging, I promise. But I'm going to start here. <laughs> how are you being faithful to the Lord? What does it look like? Because my wife isn't like, if I walked up to my wife and said, babe, the last month, 99.9% .9 faithful to you. I killed it. 
she would say, well, okay, time out. Let's talk about that 0.01%. Like, when, when, did, when did that happen? Well, it's not a big deal. I mean, last, I mean, you know, that, okay, it was like for an hour, but that's not a big deal. Of all the hours I've lived over the last month, faithful. One hour, not so much. The other 999%, yes. And we, we present ourselves to the Lord like that. Like, Lord, I've been super faithful this week. That one hour over here doesn't count. But, you know, all the rest of them, super faithful. Now, thankful that the mercies of God are new every morning, yes? And they're not based on how many tears you shed in your unfaithfulness. They're based on the blood that Jesus shed for us. And so I just want to ask you this morning, what keeps you from turning? Is it what? We're going to walk through two verses in 1 Samuel 22. I'm going to encourage you to read 22 and 23 your own. I'm going to summarize them for you, but we're going to look at two verses. So you have your Bible. I want you to go over there, 1 Samuel 22 and verse 1. A little recap. David is on the run. David got anointed king. Most scholars think 11, 12, 13 years old. He was, a, he was a, probably a pre-adolescent. Youngest family of a bunch of brothers. God sends Samuel out to find a new king because he's done with Saul. And, and here is this ruddy, is the word the Bible uses. Some of that means handsome. Another part of it means he was 13. His ears were probably bigger than his head. His eye teeth were probably bigger than the rest of his mouth. And only his mom loved him a lot, probably at that point. <laughs> 11, 12, 13, he gets anointed. At this point, he's probably in his early 20s. And it's been eight years since the Lord has anointed him king to 10 years. It's going to be 15 to 20 before he actually becomes king. I want you to read verse 1 with me. You don't have to read it out loud. I'll read it. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. He's been running from Saul, who's crazed with jealousy. They've been singing David... Saul slains his thousands. David slains his thousands upon thousands, right? So it says, David departed from there, escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. So it's been eight to 10, maybe 12 years between the anointing of Samuel, God's prophet over David, when he he was declared that you will be my king And now he's on the run hiding in a cave some years later. I don't know how many years, but a bunch of years later. And he's hiding in a cave and he doesn't have an army with him. He has just a few people around him. And when they hear that he's there, when his family hears that he's there, his his brothers and his father from his father's house, when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down to him. And so who comes to be around David at this point in the middle of his, in the middle of his hiding is his family. And, and there's this weird moment that I, that I, that I want you to, to live in with me for a moment. When was the last time that you heard God so clear that you knew it was God? When was that last time? And I hope for some of you it was reading here because it's a whole lot easier to know it's clear here than it is when you're laying in your bed and you have a vision. Because whenever I have those, which yes, God speaks in those, but man, I wake up the next day thinking, how do I know? Right? God, do you really want me to go plant that church, move my family from Texas to St. Louis, like for real? That's what happened to me. But I, I mean, it took a while to discern and walk through that because you just don't know. When it's written down in here, you're like, I know. 
So maybe some of you read recently like love your neighbor and you've got that neighbor that you don't want to love and so you know God's spoken to you and now you're trying to figure out how to love that neighbor. Maybe that's, you, maybe that's the moment, but I don't know. When's the last time God spoke so clearly that you were just like, man, I know this is the Lord. And then I want to ask you this, like, what is it like when you have to wait on the Lord after you've heard from the Lord? For most of us, we wait on the Lord to hear from the Lord, right? We're like, God, I need an answer. I need some wisdom. And so we go pray and we're like, God, I'll wait on you. And we're waiting for the Lord to speak. But what happens when you hear from the Lord and God says, do this and I'll do it with you. And then there's this long period of waiting because God's not letting it happen yet. So what's going on in David's life? God told David, you're going to be king. Now wait. And we don't know how long, eight, 10 years later, he's still waiting. And not only is he waiting, he's on the run for his life. Way back here is a distant memory of this man anointing him with oil in front of all of his brothers, which I'm sure was an awkward as heck moment. When the big strong brothers got passed over for the little scrawny brother. And God told him through a man of God, you're going to be king. And now years later, he's on the run in the wilderness. And I'm sure David's thinking, Lord, did, did I miss what you said? And I just want to bring us all into this moment this morning. There are going to be moments in your life when you're sure that you've heard God, but he tells you to wait. Will you turn? The question is, where will you turn? Where will you turn? David had a lot of places to turn. Where will you turn? Where will I turn? I think a lot of my unfaithfulness in my walk with Christ has to do with hearing from the Lord, but not liking his timing. Hearing from the Lord never means we don't have to wait on the Lord. I was 17 years old when I came to know Christ. A man named Jackie Gibbs started discipling me about a year later. Gave me a chance to start discipling 13 and 14-year-olds when I was about 18. And I didn't even know what that word necessarily meant. He was just teaching me how to read the Bible and applying it a little bit. And then he brought some other middle schoolers on board with us. And we were all kind of doing this together. And he split us up in groups. And I would lead a group. And before I knew it, I was leading groups. And so I didn't know what he was doing, but he was teaching me how to do this. And, and I was doing it and having some kind of success, whatever that means, because there were more kids coming and kids learning and people were coming to Christ. And all of a sudden I just started thinking, well, this is fun. I didn't have this calling to do youth ministry. I was doing it. And so I kind of guess I did have a calling, but it wasn't like I was laying in bed one night and God said, I want you to work with youth. <laughs> that didn't what happened. I just got saved and was working with youth. There I was and went off to college and about three years later and working with students every day that I worked with students with a bunch of people like a youth minister, college minister, whoever it was. Every day I worked with students, I kept thinking, Lord, and this, I don't know when this happens, but at some place you start to think to yourself, when is this going to get real? And what I meant by real was, when am I going to be in charge? So I was about 22 years old, and I really started asking the Lord, like, man, Lord, you've called me to work with students. It's obvious, and I love this, but all I've been doing for four years is just hanging out with kids and helping them read the Bible, which, by the way, pretty cool deal. And I was asking the Lord, like, when are you, you going to let me do this? It was four years later at 26 before the first time I ever got, like, an official role Title, I made $500 a month as a youth minister. Woo! <laughs> it was awesome. 
But between 17 and 25, God said, wait. I don't, I don't know what you're waiting on the Lord for right now, but hearing from the Lord does not mean you're not going to have to wait. God makes us wait for all sorts of reasons. He's just asked us to, like he did David, or he wait because he's preparing. We wait because it's not time and whatever God's doing in our life. And sometimes it has nothing to do with us. It has to do with other people. Kids, spouse, friends, whatever it is. But I know this, waiting on the Lord requires humility, and I didn't have much of it at 22. Let me ask you this question. What, what is humility in your opinion, like biblical humility? What is it? What do you think? You can answer out loud. What do you think? Give me some words that go with biblical humility. What are some words? Servant, yeah, what else? Listening, patience, transparent, loving, what was the other thing? Kindness. What doesn't go with humility? Let's say those words. What doesn't go with humility? Pride, what else? Selfishness, jealousy, anger, yeah. Amen. What else? I think if we were going to make a list, we kind of know what humility isn't. It's a little harder to describe what it is. I mean, we can talk about like the fruit of it, but it's, well, let me ask it this way. How do you get humility besides from the Lord? What does the Lord do? Like if you notice, it's not one of the gifts of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, humility. I mean, it's not, I think it is, but it's not like mentioned by name. So what does the Lord do to give us humility? What are some of the things he's done in your life? What has he done? Tumbled us, which for me, that usually means humiliation. Like, I don't think there's humility without some kind of humiliation. Now, there's a line where I'm not talking about your, you know, abusive humiliation. And I don't even want to put that on the Lord, but I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about some kind of humiliation usually precedes humility. Any other words that come to mind? Broken. Yeah. What do you think's happening to David at this moment? Eight years into anointing. Eight humbling. Eight years into being told you're going to be the king. Now he's in a cave. Yeah. Now watch this. This is verse one. His family comes to him. I want you to see verse two. This is verse 2. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and became, and he became commander over them. And there was about 400 men. You notice who God brings to David for an army? If you know David's life, you're going to read this as, we, as you go further, but there's this group that gets formed around him called the Mighty Men. This is the beginning of that. And I want you to notice again the qualifications that God brought. Everyone that was in debt, everyone, it goes back, everyone who's in distress, everyone who's in debt, everyone who was in bitter in soul. So all, from all of that surrounding region, the crazies, the misfits came to David. You ever seen that, that cartoon, the misfit island of misfit toys? Like this is what showed up to David. All the broken people of that area that knew they were broken, in distress, in debt, bitter souls, they show up. And David's like, thank you, Lord. No. First, his family shows up. Same guys that are probably bitter with him about him being anointed king. Here comes all his brothers. 
But at least they came. And then the distressed, the indebted, the bitter. Man. These were people who were the down and out of society. They'd been cast out, left out, rejected. They were in great need in body and soul. They were desperate people. They didn't fit into the Jewish society. And here they are showing up with David. Knowing that he's being pursued by the king. They show up for David. And it says this, he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. And from this group of misfits, God forms an army. We look at this situation, and I think I I look at this situation, and I just kind of readily identify with David. My first thought is, man, God, you've given me this this calling, and, and I've been waiting on you to fulfill this calling. And I think one of the things David was probably waiting for was provision of, of an army, some kind of people that would rally around him because he's being chased by thousands of people by Saul. And here's who God rallies to his side, his family and the crazies and the broken and the misfits. Imagine David saying, this is my army. In 1998, we we moved here to start a church over in St. Charles, my wife and I, and we prayed that God would save people and bring people, and he did. And not thousands. I mean, the church grew to about 100 people, and I I promise you that 50 of the first 100 were people that we baptized in the church. It was like running a preschool ministry of adults because we had a ton of people that were brand-new Christians, had no idea what to do, so we started praying for God to bring some leaders. We probably should have prayed for that at the beginning, but didn't really know what we were doing. And instead of bringing leaders, you know what God did? He brought more lost people. And I, I identify with David. I'm like, Lord, we need some people that know how to swing the sword, not people that are crazy enough to pick it up and swing it at me. We identify with David, don't we? Like we're single and we think we need godly friends. And instead of God sending us godly friends, God sends us friends who need God. Anybody identify with that right now? Like you're that person who's like, God, I need friends. And God sends you friends who need God. And you're like, I don't really want to minister to them, Lord. I want some friends to minister to me. And you need both. But sometimes God sends those. You're married and you're thinking, man, God just sent us one married couple that loves Jesus. And instead he sends another one that needs Jesus. You're married and you're thinking, Lord, Lord, seriously, send us and, and what he sends you is another kid in your family that's desperately needy. You're, you're a missional community leader. And you're like, Lord, just send us one person who, who has any kind of gospel fluency and loves Jesus a little bit. Instead, what he sends you is more people that need the gospel. And you feel like your missional community is an island of misfits. The distressed, the indebted, that's who shows up, Right? And you're a little bit frustrated about it. And we, we all kind of identify with David. I mean, we've got this like, Lord, what are you doing? Can I, listen, there's a lot to be learned from David as we walk through First Samuel. But can I just say this this morning? I think you should identify, I should identify more with the misfits than we do with David. <clears throat> that maybe this morning what God's asking you to look at is the misfits for a second and not David. Let me just walk us through what I mean. The truth is that we are the misfits that God has redeemed for a purpose. Like, this is, this is who we are. We're, we're broken people, broken lives. We've all been in a place of distress. We've all been in a place where we're in an extreme amount of debt, maybe not financially, but a extreme amount of debt to other people or to God, and we're in a place where we, our, so, our soul, I, I love this phrase, it says their soul was so bitter 
And so I just want to leave you with two truths this morning as, as we run into this. We, we need to deeply believe two things that God is going to help us with that help us not turn or, or at least point us to turn towards Jesus. And the first one is this. We are misfits who are being redeemed. We say past tense a lot as followers of Christ, like I've been saved. The scripture says it this way, you're being saved. And there's a reason for that. It doesn't mean there's not a point in time when God writes your name into the Lamb's book of life. There's not a, it's not that there's not a point in time when God bends over your dead soul and blows life into it. And as the scripture says, regenerates your, your soul from death to life. There is a moment when that happens. But I want you to hear this about the redemption that God's doing in your life. Redemption is a past tense thing that God does in us when he like defibrillates us back into life. But it is also a present tense thing as God is redeeming you today. And then it's a future tense thing because God's going to keep redeeming you. And that's how the scripture talks about it. That's how Paul talks about it. That's how Jesus talked about it to his disciples. And if you see Peter and Paul and you read through them all into the New Testament, you see these guys talking about, here's this moment when God saved me, but God is saving me now and God will save me. And the question is, what keeps us faithful to being saved? To turning to Christ. And I will tell you, humility is going to be the greatest marker in your life that points on where you're turning. Lack of humility, when you're waiting on the Lord, will cause you to turn to all sorts of other kings. Humility will cause you to turn to the true king. What was going on in that moment there in in the culture was there was a king that had been set up as king by God who now was not the rightful king, Saul. There's a new king that people didn't even know about yet, David, but God had sent people to this king. And all of these people that came to David, all of these broken misfits that came to David were declaring this, we're not following this king, we're following this king. And my question to you today is, which king are you following? Because there's a lot of kings in this world to follow. Sometimes it's our kids, we make them kings. Sometimes it's our education, the things that we know in our head, sometimes it's the government, sometimes it's, it's, our, it's our hope and the job that we have, sometimes it's our career, sometimes it's a relationship. Man, if this would just be well. And I just want to ask you, like, what's the king you're running to? Because God's called us to be of a kingdom of a different world. And that doesn't mean we don't have purpose here, it just means we have a different king from a different world. But I say this first and foremost, like if we are going to turn to Christ in the middle of what God has us in, if we're going to not turn to other kings, then there's going to have to be an incredible amount of humility that defines your life. Back to that room yesterday morning, I'm sitting there with this man and one of the guys that's with us asked him and said, so we, we got back to the question of, do you think you're qualified to be a pastor? And he said, well, he said, I, I, I think that's something you guys get to determine. But he said, as far as what God has led me and my wife through and what he's led me to, yes. Because it's not about, and then he backed up and said, let me say this. What's defined my life isn't the worst moments in my life or the best moments in my life. And he said, what I see in the scripture, what, what qualifications of an elder are, are those things that are determined by the heart and what God's doing in a heart. And he said, I know this, what God's doing in my, and he said this present tense, I love, they said what God's doing in my heart is defining me in Christ 
way more than I was ever defined by who I was before that. And I want to ask you this morning, what defines you? Is it humility and a heart that's being redeemed, has been redeemed, is being redeemed, is going to be redeemed? Let me give you you a specific. Anger. David brought up. Maybe, Maybe five years ago, you were known as an angry person. My question is right now, what are, you, what are you known as now? Are you known as somebody that just stuffs it? Like you don't kick holes in the wall anymore, but you have an ulcer? Because that's, that's what some of us do, right? I mean, we, we learn back over here that when you kick holes in a wall, there's a cost and it doesn't look good. <laughs> you know, you have to get people to come over and fix things. And so if you just stuff it, you know, nobody really knows that you're that angry, except when you go to the doctor and they're like, dude, you got a hole in your stomach. You haven't really changed your heart. You just changed the platform which the anger is displaced. God hasn't changed. My question, what defines you in that realm of anger? What defines you in that realm of pride? What defines you in that realm of jealousy? What defines you in that realm of Think about those things. And is it, I'm not saying do you get angry. I'm just saying, does it define you? Does humility define your life? Because if humility defines your life, you will constantly remember that you were the misfit. Watch the tenses here. You were the misfit, indebted, distressed, bitter in soul. But you will also remember now that lurking in your heart is all of those misfit qualities that God's been redeeming. And you wake up some mornings and you're more bitter in soul than you are joyful in your soul. Anybody identify with that? So what do you do when you wake up those mornings, you're bitter in soul? Do you just stuff it and not let people know? Or do you confess it and cry out to the Lord so that he'll redeem you today? Not save you again. That's not what I mean. But his saving work will pour out new mercies on you because you've confessed it out. So many of us miss the love of God because we're not willing to confess the sin we have before God. And you're saying all the time, gosh, I wish I could taste the love of God. And the reason you miss tasting the love of God is because you won't confess before God the distress, the debt, the bitterness. And you miss out on living in the redemption of God present tense. And for you, it's just a past tense memory of a youth camp, that night, that place. And God wants you to taste what it's like this morning with new mercies. And he wants you to have hope that three days from now, three weeks from now, three months from now, that he's still there, that he's still God, and he's still king. First thing he's calling us to is to to live in the middle of this truth that you and I are being redeemed. We are the misfits that are being redeemed. The second thing is this. We're being redeemed for a purpose. I love this. He says, "And and he became commander over them. They gathered to him. Notice what happened. Everyone that was in debt and bitter in soul. And then it says this, they gathered to him and he became commander over them. We are being redeemed for a purpose. And that purpose has two parts, to be with the king and to go with the king. First thing that it says there is that they were with him. They gathered to him. I want to ask you this question. What does what your relationship with the Lord look like right now? What is it? I mean, if you were to ask me about my wife, I asked this man that day, that morning, as we were sitting there yesterday morning, I said, tell me about your relationship with your wife now. What does it look like? Y'all talk about it for a moment. They, they talked about their relationship, and it was very tangible. Time they spend, dates they go out on, how they fight, arguments, how they pray together, everything. And then I looked at both of them, and I said, get out, you know, here's a pen, here's a piece of paper, write down a number, one to ten. Ten being, man, we can't 
stand it. It's so great. One, we don't like each other at all. Write a number down about your relationship with the Lord. It was awesome. One wrote seven, the other wrote eight. That was kind of fun. They were close. If I gave you a piece of paper right now and said, describe your relationship with the Lord, one to ten, ten's awesome, one's not so much, and define it, write it out, like time you spend with him, intimacy, feels distant, feels close. I mean, what would you say? Because I want you to hear this, like the, one of the main purposes God has redeemed you as a misfit into his army is to be with him. You were created to be with God. You've been redeemed, made right with God so that you can be with God. Justification exists for the whole purpose of living in relationship with God. You're not just made right with God to sit at the little kid's table. You ever had one of those at Thanksgiving? Remember that? All the adults sat over here, and then there was kind of this weird medium adult table here, and then there was this table, and then there was the little kid table over there. I was the youngest in my family, so I sat at that table in my grandmother's house in Arkansas, Hope, Arkansas, and I always looked way over there at that table thinking, well, I know what's going on over there. <laughs> a little bit of FOMO, missing out with all the adults over there, you know? And I sat over here, and the only reason I was okay with sitting over here because the stove was over there where the homemade yeast rolls came out of, but that was it. I wanted to be over there. <laughs> And can I say this for a lot of us? We, we kind of feel like that's our place in the kingdom. You've been saved and sat at a little kid's table and like God and the big people sit over here. And you were saved to sit at the king's table with the king. And simple ways that happen is you and I, when we wake up in the morning and we sit down and we open our swords and we remember two things. I was a misfit. I am a misfit, but I've been redeemed by a king, so I have access to sit at the king's table. I get to be with the king today. You've been adopted into the king's family as a son and a daughter, and you get to sit down with the king. We have access, and because we have access, I can, I can actually know my king. When I drive to work, I can talk to my king. When I'm at work, I can have conversations in my head with the king. When I go to bed at night, I can lay my head down at the bed at night talking to my king. How is your relationship with the Lord? Because it's why you were created. So the purpose of the redeeming of the misfits into his army was to be with the king. There's a second part, though. He made him his army. He became commander over them, and there were about 400 men. What happened in the rest of these chapters? Chapter 22, I'll let you read this. In chapter 22, Saul finds out that David had gone to the priest at Nob and got Goliath's sword and some showbread. And he gets mad and slaughters all the priests there at Nob. After that, David runs again. Here's about a village that's going to be attacked by the Philistines. Takes his 400 men for the first time. They fight their first battle. And they win. Saul comes after him again. They run. Jonathan shows up. David's friend, Saul's son, they make another covenant in the middle of the wilderness. Jonathan says, the Lord is with you. You are going to be king. Remember what I said at the very beginning that David's sitting here wondering, Lord, what are you doing? I heard over here that you said this would happen. Now I'm waiting. Now you send me these crazy people. And then here comes Jonathan to remind David, hey, you will be king. The Lord has spoken. Part of the reason we don't remember why we're waiting and we turn it's because we stop listening to the voice of our king. I just encourage you this morning, man, you, we desperately need the voice of our king. 
And there were battles fought and more running and battles fought and more running. And he ends up still in the middle of the wilderness at the end of chapter 23. So this morning, as we wrap up, I just want to ask you these two questions. Really, there's 30. First is, have you been redeemed? Do you, do you recognize that you're a misfit? I think we all do. That someplace there's distress in our lives, that there's bitterness in our soul, and we're indebted to a holy God. The question is, have you been redeemed? Have you rested your soul on the person and work of Jesus alone to make you right with God so that you can be with God? Have you? Not do you go to church. Not do you recognize that God is real. But have you trusted your soul to the person and work of Jesus Christ? Has he redeemed you? Is he redeeming you? I'm going to pray for you just a minute and pray for us. Secondly, do you see that you're in need of being redeemed daily? Like, do you still see yourself as the misfit so that humility marks your life? Desperate need of a Jesus. So that you're faithful to him, like my friend said he was faithful to his wife, not because he's found love in her that's better than anything else in this world. He doesn't want to lose it, but he's found love in a king that's better than anything else in the world. And it drives him to love her differently. Do you see your need for Jesus desperately daily? Is God humbling you right now, not to make you turn away from him, but to turn to him? And he is, turn to him this morning. And the last thing, and do you see that God's redeemed you for a purpose? Maybe you say, John, man, I have no idea. Man, we're, let's pray about that this morning. I can tell you one of the purposes is to be with him. And maybe you're saying, I don't, I don't really know how. Man, they would love to help you here. David would love to help you here. Jeff would love to help you here. Your MC leaders would love to help you with what it just looks like to meet with God. Let's pray. Father, I ask in the name of Jesus that you would redeem even in this room right now. God, if there's one that would say, God, I don't know that I've ever trusted Jesus alone to make me right with God. May this be the place that we confess Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. If that's you, God, so there's, a, there's a confession that God calls us to, but that's just simply this. Can you, can you acknowledge and cry out that you need Jesus alone to make you right with God so that you can be with God? And if that's the cry of your heart, just cry it out to him right now. Jesus, I believe that you alone can make me right with God. Follower of Christ. Man, if God's humbling you at this moment, if he's, if he's breaking you and showing you your brokenness this morning, would you allow that to be received as a gift? And would you turn to him? And lest you turn away, turn to him. Let him show you that your misfittedness, your brokenness doesn't define you anymore, but it absolutely makes us humble in need of a king for every breath, for new mercies every morning. And right now, turn to him right now. We sang earlier, there's a father waiting to embrace us in his arms. Believe him right now. Father, see your sons and daughters running to you right now. And if right now you need to hear the biggest purpose God's created you for is to be with him right now, hear this. He's given you access. You're the only one that can interrupt the king and even say, I just want to drink water because you're his son and his daughter. God, remind us this morning, help us believe this morning in our unbelief that you've given us access to you to be with you, to know you and to know the king that loves us beyond our belief. 
So God, call us home, redeem us, bring us back to you right now in this place and allow the humility that you're birthing into our lives right now to turn us to you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.